each one of us is here for various reasons, of course. I think when we look underneath those reasons, we may see what's foundational uh, to those reasons that may differ with all of us. But what's at the bottom of it, we may find, is a very uh, deep interest in being more skillful about our life, about being more skillful in living peacefully, in living happily, in living harmoniously. And that skill takes a lot of ability to see more clearly, to come close to life's experience in a way that we've never come close before. It requires a very compassionate kind of clarity and wisdom that we're developing here in our practice. This kind of compassionate clarity and wisdom tends to reveal the true causes of peace, the true causes of that unconditional peace and happiness, the causes of living harmoniously, of finding that harmony within ourselves and with others. This clarity and wisdom is needed so that we can know the true causes, so that they can be developed, so that they can be nurtured, so that they can shine forth in our lives. The same clarity and wisdom that comes with compassion that can reveal the true causes that lead to happiness and peace, also reveal the causes that lead to unhappiness, to angst, to unrest, to desperation, to grief. And unfortunately, when we come to the path, or I would say fortunately, we don't only open to what's beautiful, to the causes that lead to happiness, but we must be willing to open to all the rest of it, to those places within us that are the cause of angst, the cause of unrest, the cause of confusion, the cause of unhappiness, so that we don't really have a choice when we come to practice in this way. We can't say, I just want to open to this part of life, We come to practice to open, and we must be willing to open to all of it and to be able to face all of it with more skill. The Buddha gave a promise that the causes for happiness and peace can be known, can be nurtured, can be developed. We can learn to use them more skillfully in our lives. He also gave the promise that those Uh, causes of inner angst, unrest, can also be known, can also be diminished, weakened, and eventually relinquished or purified from the mind stream. So that no matter what happens to us in this world, no matter what happens in the outer world that kind of throws rocks or uh, pebbles onto the still pond of our mind-heart. No matter what happens in the inner world, those currents, those habitual currents that come in our lives, 
we will always know the way to deeper happiness. We'll always know the way. We'll have a taste of that and we'll know the pathway there. So this deep work that we're doing here in intensive training begins to translate in our lives in very practical ways. And that translation into our lives of being more harmonious inwardly and outwardly, we bring back onto the sitting cushion and we get deeper and deeper in our understanding. And then we bring that back into the world. So it's an ever-deepening cycle of compassion and wisdom. The skill that serves us in the most key way in all of this is mindfulness. Mindfulness. So that's what I'd like to speak about this evening because this is what our path of practice is all about in these next eight or nine days. The Buddha called mindfulness the inner mentor. It's um, uh, a way that we begin to see life through this, this lens of mindfulness. I was struck in the last retreat that I, I was a yogi in um, and reminded about how mindfulness is a protection. One of its manifestations is protection. It protects us first from inner harm, from seeing what harms us through the um, habitual ways that keep coming up, the various manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. And because it protects us in this way, it protects us from doing outer harm and also protects others, of course. So this uh, manifestation of protection is a very important aspect of the practice of mindfulness. It's a trustworthy key for very, very deep peace and happiness within ourselves and therefore with others. Mindfulness is the cause and condition for very immediate results, also very far-reaching results. So I'd like to talk about those uh, this evening. Through the years, as each one of us matures in our practice, in our skill, there is a deeper seeing on subtler levels. And I know many of you have five, ten, up to thirty more years of practice. And I think one of the things that we see over and over is just how much of a beginner we are with it. Um, And so whatever I say this evening that can seem so simple to you or so foundational to you, it's always um, shocking to me how a light goes on when I hear some of these very fundamental and simple things about mindfulness. So even those of you who have been in the practice for a long time, I hope that you will listen with with beginner's ears and have a beginner's heart in uh, hearing these teachings. Some of these teachings, um, I recently did a retreat with Sayadaw Upandita. I did partial, uh, a part of it, three weeks of it. Joseph was there too doing the whole six weeks of it. 
and I integrated some of the notes that I took from that retreat, from the teachings of uh, mindfulness, and put them in this talk. They were very basic, but it was a great reminder to me and really helped me. So in this practice on subtler levels, the powerful habit patterns become known. The powerful habit patterns of greed and its many manifestations, desire, attachment, lust, various ways that uh, we get stuck to whatever has come up in the practice. The various ways of aversion, how whatever comes up in the mind or inside or outside, there's this habit pattern of pushing away or striking out at or turning away from. And the various ways of delusion, of not seeing clearly what's going on, the ways in which we camouflage or ignore what's happening. As these get exposed, I notice in my own practice, and I hear from some of you that I know and many that are on the path that speak to me about their practice, as we go deeper in practice, also a deeper sense of urgency arises to be free. And this sense of urgency is very wholesome. It's a a wholesome state of mind that makes us more and more alert. Um, Upandita and, and the various elders that we learn from say that we can never have enough of mindfulness. In fact, mindfulness is usually always lacking. We can always have more of it. And um, one of the times I went in for interview with one of the elders, one of the monks that I reported to, he gave me a, a little Dharma talk, and he said that the Buddha, uh, one fear that the Buddha had was he feared not being mindful. And so that really opened my eyes. It, it really made the spiritual urgency that I've been carrying, like all of you, for so many years, much greater in, in a balanced way. So this deep sense of urgency to be free begins to arise when we can open to what's difficult inside and what's difficult outside so that we're able to live day by day in a better way, more skillfully, with a mind and heart that is neither ignoring nor camouflaging what is happening in the present moment, in our lives, in the world. Increasingly, for me, it's becoming more and more important to die with a clear mind, to die with a heart that at least in those moments, I can feel a sense of deep, abiding love. Um, there have been many, like all of you, uh, more than usual in the past three years, people that I've been with who have died. And what has become more and more important to them and also to me is being able to die peacefully with a clear mind, a loving heart, And so that's, it's not only a sense of spiritual urgency to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion on kind of like the deepest or highest level, 
not only to live my life day by day in a more skillful way, but also to be able to die in a way that's skillful, unconfused. With practice, we also realize how powerful mindfulness can be in the face of those difficulties, how mindfulness can see the dissolving, can mirror the dissolving of whatever is being faced, can mirror the emptiness of whatever is being faced, can mirror the truth of whatever is being faced. It takes courage to be able to open to all of that, which mindfulness has uh, as its support, that compassionate kind of courage. It also takes a sobering kind of honesty to be able to look inside, to be able to face what comes up. It's said that mindfulness has no shame. It's, it just is able to face shame itself without backing down, just to mirror what's going on. So with practice, with skill, we realize this possibility that no matter what is in front of the mirror of mindfulness, if it's pleasant, there can be no grasping. If it's unpleasant, there can be no aversion. Uh, If it starts out being confusing, there can be, in the end, no confusion because the moment can be clear. Mindfulness is more powerful than whatever it faces. And this is the, the real wonderful news about mindfulness. It can experience the present moment without grasping, without aversion, without confusion. It can experience the present moment with friendliness, with generosity, with wisdom. What I see with myself and with many others as we develop this skill is there's a greater sense of confidence in knowing the way to that place. Sometimes, of course, we all get imbalanced, off balance, and there's a way that we know how to balance ourselves in the practice. If we're too tight with our mindfulness, we may begin to know to loosen up, to back off. If we're too loose or too kind of spacious-minded to the point where it gets spacey, where we get spacey, spaced in or spaced out. We know how to bring a clarity and a kind of um, a tightening up in the good sense of the word, in the skillful sense of the word, with mindfulness. So that no matter what happens to us in the world, in the inner world, the inner currents that habitually go through the mind and heart, no matter what happens in the outer world, nothing can really shake us up so much that we're out of balance for too long of a time. We always know the path. We always know the way. Maybe we're not fully there yet all the time. As we go along, we see that we can be more and more there. We can be more and more present in a very balanced way. The Buddha, in his um, discourse on the foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, gave seven promises. He didn't call them promises, uh, but I call them promises. Um, 
He gave seven benefits of doing the practice of mindfulness. And he said in this way, bhikkhus. Bhikkhus means the men or women, the monastics or the lay people who practice this practice. Bhikkhus, this is the direct way, the direct path for the purification of mind, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain, for the disappearance of grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana or the unconditioned. So these are the near and far-reaching benefits of the path of practice that we're on. In the West, we use this word vipassana to identify this practice. Um, It's on the flyers, it's on the announcements in the inquiring mind and in uh, many other places, of course. This word vipassana actually means insight into the true nature of phenomena. Insight into the true nature of phenomena. This word vipassana is the result of our practice. So when we use the word vipassana, we're really talking about uh, one of the far-reaching results of this practice which leads to greater wisdom and compassion. When we practice with our own elders, with our own teachers, they remind us that satipatthana is the word to describe the method. So if we want to understand this from a very traditional way, it's good to know this since we're on this path. And many people aren't aware of this, that satipatthana is the method that we use. And vipassana, you might say, is the result of that method. These are ancient Pali words. Pali words were used to um, hand down the the teachings of the Buddha. So the, the, the three words that are used in a very traditional way are satipatthana, vipassana, bhavana. And bhavana means cultivation the cultivation of satipatthana, the cultivation of um, seeing clearly into the nature of reality. And so these are the words that are more accurately describing what we do in our practice. It's the complete, uh, more complete way of saying it. I was interested in um, rehearing the, the talk that was given about the, the way that we understand the breakdown of those words because it helped me to know how to practice more effectively, more skillfully. So I wanted to pass down that teaching to you so that maybe you could understand how to practice more skillfully. Sati is often described or translated simply as mindfulness. Uh, But our elders say that that's really uh, an incomplete rendering of the word sati. In the word satipatthana, sati means mindfulness. But it isn't this ordinary kind of mindfulness that we use to simply be present of our 
daily movements in life, to be present in our relationships with others, which of course is absolutely necessary and important. It's not the kind of mindfulness to get through our lives in a, in a way where we can raise our kids, send them to college, go to get through um, our interpersonal relationships, etc. It's not that kind of general mindfulness, which is extremely important, but in, the, in terms of this practice of satipatthana vipassana, it doesn't mean only that, although those kinds of mindfulness are the basis and, and really helpful. In terms of purification of the mind, purification of heart, sati in this sense means the extraordinary power to pierce through the uh, present moment's experience and to see in that present moment's experience uh, to realize understandings that have not yet been realized. They are profound, mind-changing understandings. It's beyond conceptual reality. It's a kind of mindfulness that's able to approach ultimate reality, direct, more direct experience. So more, more on that understanding later, the difference between conceptual and ultimate reality. Sati means to remember. But it's not remembering the past. It's not remembering what we might think about the future. It's really remembering to be in the present moment. It observes the present moment in this sense of satipatthana, not anything else. Observing power is a better translation, powerful observation of the present moment. It's like a scientist just observing what's going on. When a scientist observes, it's without an agenda of uh, doing anything with what is being observed. It might have some far-reaching goal of translating what is being observed into some other idea. But for the present moment, observing what's happening without commenting, without having any uh, far-reaching goal in mind, without embellishing the present moment, without camouflaging it or seeing through a different lens, of greed or hatred, without comparing it to anything else. And one of the things that's really important when we come to do this practice is not trying to fit this practice of mindfulness into any other niche, into any other understanding, into any previous framework, even a a framework that's in a similar tradition. When we do this practice, it's better to just take it in the simple way that it's being given day to day. And in that way, uh, we can really learn something. When we compare or try to fit it into a previous framework, um, that's what we're doing. We're not understanding this practice in and of itself, but we're comparing and we're trying to translate it into something we already know. So leaving aside all other understandings and just coming to it with a simple mind. 
So that's about sati. I was um, so interested in what they had to say regarding the mirror, uh, the mirror of mindfulness. And so uh, for this talk, I kind of looked into my own files to get other ways of um, talking about the mirror of mindfulness so we can be more skillful in knowing what a mirror is. Chuang Su described uh, the mirror of mindfulness this way. The perfect woman or man uses her or his mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives but does not take. So how can we do this when we bring the attention close to whatever is being seen, is being observed. And this from the Tibetan tradition, describing mindfulness, the five wisdoms of mindfulness. You can think of mindfulness like a mirror with different powers, with different wisdoms. One is its capacity to reflect in precise detail whatever comes before it. This is the mirror-like wisdom of mindfulness. Another is the fundamental lack of any bias towards any impression that comes before it. And so this is the equalizing wisdom of mindfulness, this non-comparing wisdom of mindfulness. The third is its ability to distinguish clearly without confusing in any way, the various phenomena. So this is the discerning wisdom of mindfulness. And the fourth is its openness and vastness. So this is the compassionate wisdom of mindfulness. So through mindfulness, these various types of wisdom become known to us. I still remember Manindra's first instructions, and they remained the way that he instructed us to be mindful. He would say, whatever arises in the field of mindfulness, and I'm just paraphrasing him, be aware of whatever is arising, be mindful of whatever is arising without comparing, without commenting, without condemning, without intellectualizing. Just be aware of the present moment in the very simple way that it presents itself. So that is about sati, this kind of observing power that we're training ourselves to be more skillful in here in retreat. And the second part of that word, sati, patana, patana. Patana means close, means steadfast establishment of uh, mindfulness on whatever it is being mindful of. It's this very bare, simple attention on whatever is arising. We all know how easy it is to hear the instructions in the morning and to be mindful of whatever arises as we're hearing the instructions. For example, just now, If I ask you to be mindful of the sensations in your right hand, that's very simple when we're reminded of it from the outside. 
this kind of mindfulness that the Buddha was talking about in terms of being completely free of the obscurations and the defilements of the mind um, is a kind of mindfulness that is able to be mindful moment to moment without being reminded from the outside. So it's this kind of persevering effort in a very gentle way. Gentle, persevering effort. Balanced. So to be mindful in this way, to remember to be mindful every moment. The more we remember, the more the habit pattern of mindfulness is developed. So tana means the object of mindfulness. And pa, you could say in one way, uh, Upandita would say, that that means extra emphasis of uh, sati, of mindfulness on the object. When we become more still in the body, we come to see what that really means. When the body is stiller, the mind becomes stiller, and we come to see beneath the conceptual realm of reality. We come to bring mindfulness to what the Buddha called the four foundations of mindfulness. And just briefly and generally, they are the body and the feelings that arise, not in terms of emotions, but pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and the various um, moods of the mind, various uh, consciousnesses, states of consciousness, and mental objects. So you don't have to get too much into um, splitting hairs about all of that. It's just being mindful of the body and the mind and all the various ways that we experience being human. We can get interested in that if we're really quiet and still. We can get very interested in that. Um, I'm hearkening back to a time when the first time I took Steve, uh, Steve and I are partners, and um, the first time he arrived on Maui many, many years ago, I took him to a place called the Aquarium. And it's a small um, lagoon that's off of the ocean. And it's an inlet that's surrounded by black lava. And um, when I took him there, I was really interested to see what it would be like for him to see beneath the surface of that lagoon. Because when you look at the surface of that lagoon, it's very boring. On a gray day, um, you know, when there's clouds overhead, that lagoon can just look gray and there's nothing to it and surrounded by black rock. And that's the kind of day we went out on. And so we walked about a mile over this lava rock that has a certain lava has certain names in Hawaii. And this lava is kind of pointy and it hurts when your feet get on it or when you fall down on it. So they call that rock ah-ah because that's what it, that's what you say when you're walking on it, ah-ah. So we were walking across that rock. It, t- it takes like about 45 minutes to an hour. And we arrived at this place, this aquarium, this lagoon. And Steve, um, being the aversive type, 
says, uh, <laughs> probably more about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Lovingly being the aversive mm-hmm. type, he says, um, what's so big about this? You know, why did you take me all the way out here to see this gray lagoon? And I had to walk all over this lava rock and it looks pretty small and, you know, big deal. So I said, just be patient, just be patient, put on your flippers and your snorkel mask and, you know, you'll see. So I just could never, I'll never forget his face. He put on his snorkel and his flippers and he stood there, and he was only like um, knee, uh, up to his knees in water. And I said, just put your head in the water. And so he just put his head in the water, got his hair all wet, and he just flipped his head up, and he was really like flipped out. He said, oh my God, he said, this is incredible. It's so colorful under there. It didn't take too much for him to see the beauty and be interested underneath the, that level of experience, the gray, the, you know, what seems to be so boring. And so as he swam through the different places and all the different nooks and crannies of the pond of water, it was interesting to, and, uh, to hear him and to see him squeal and to have those moments of delight. <laughs> Since then, it's kind of become old hat, but um, one of our favorite things to do is snorkel. And on one of the vans that rent snorkeling gear, it says, the most beautiful and interesting part of Maui is underwater. And I would say that that's true for, for us in retreat, too, in this practice. Really, the most interesting is beneath the surface of things, when we can go underneath with mindfulness and see what's really going on there. Of course, it's not always as delightful as snorkeling. You know, we have to face a lot of things that are undelightful, unbeautiful. And I wouldn't be truthful if I didn't say that um, it can be excruciatingly painful at times. But sometimes that pain has a beauty because it, it can be beautiful to understand how courageous we can be in opening to that. The Buddha said that if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, the factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. So sati is this extraordinary observing power. Pa is steadfast energy. Tana is the object of mindfulness, all the foundations of mindfulness. Vipassana, V in Vipassana, V-I means observing the present moment in various modes. And those various modes are observing the present moment with... uh, through the lens of impermanence or seeing the impermanence, seeing the unsatisfactoriness, and seeing the conditional or empty nature of that experience. 
And pasana is knowledge, the knowledge of all of the above that I just mentioned. Bhavana means to bring forth. So satipatthana, vipassana, bhavana. In the last few years, um, since all of my four children are grown and have left the nest and now are making other little ones, five now, grandchildren to enjoy, um, and they're all pretty balanced, knock on wood, right now. There's been a stronger urgency to purify the mind more. Since the time is uh, ripe for outer conditions, to what I call clean up my heart, clean up my act more. And so there has been this um, spiritual urgency that's been greater, um, a kind of urgency that I felt 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. So because the conditions are ripe, I've been trying to do more practice with my own teachers. Thankfully, um, one of them is still alive. There's been a greater strength uh, to be able to do that, to be able to face what's difficult inside, a greater compassion garnered through the years. There's still a lot to be developed, but more compassion than before, more a skill in doing the practice than before. And so most recently, as I mentioned, I practiced um, just half of a six-week retreat with um, one of my teachers, still living, Seda Upandita, and the other elders, monks, that teach with him that I revere. Uh, and Joseph was there, as I mentioned, doing the whole six weeks of the practice. And it was really wonderful just to be a yogi with, with Joseph and to uh, just kind of digressing a little bit, <laughs> sharing the happiness of being a yogi and knowing at times your happiness. I know it's not always like this, but just to be lifting, moving, stepping in a dining hall and mindfully getting our food and you know, getting up and going, oh, you know, maybe not out loud, but, (laughs) um, and, you know, just once in a while glancing over at Joseph and out of my bedroom window, I would see him walking in the, um, in the, on the, the wooden deck. And, um, I would look out while I was doing some sitting in the room and see he's still doing it and I can still do it too. And so it's important to keep doing it, to keep doing it. So during those times, um, there were still, of course, fleeting moments of wanting to give up. So just so you know, you know, it, even with us, even with me speaking for myself, there are those moments of like, why am I here? Why did I sign up for this? You know, I could have been home gardening, or I'm too old for this, as I, you know, do seven or eight hours of sitting practice starting at four in the morning. You know, I'm too old for this. I'm not a hippie anymore. When I started out, that's how I was, you know. The, the body was agile, and the mind was more willing and, and more kind of innocent, in a way. Didn't know how difficult it was. 
um, a lot of deep inner conditioning got exposed. Also a lot of strength that's able to face it, but nevertheless, deep inner conditioning that's really painful to face. Uh, moments of you know, not feeling strong enough in mind, the old uh, empty echoes of feeling inadequate, which are more empty now than before, but still they come. Many times, it's hard to be this with this one again, many, many times. But also many times, it's good to be with this one again, seeing how uh, much more strength there is in the practice, seeing how much more skill there is in the practice. Many times, I can't go on. Many times, I can go on. That kind of attitude. Opening to whatever has to be faced being bringing mindfulness face to face with whatever is in front of it. So I had to remember back to the first time when this kind of resurgence of spiritual urgency came and I went to Burma to practice um, and I uh, first report with Upandita, he asked me, why are you here again? And I said, I want to clean up my heart. And he said, uh, in a very interesting response to me, he said, you must be willing to uh, let go of everything. You must be willing to give up everything. You must also be willing to invest everything you have. To invest everything you have. And he didn't mean about material stuff. He meant energy, loving-kindness, patience, perseverance, equanimity, forbearance, this ability to see deeply wisdom that has already been developed, this moment-to-moment gentle persevering effort. One of the things that Upandita kept pointing out in the last retreat is um, this persevering effort that's so necessary. And I might add gentle, balanced, persevering effort. The, one of the proximate causes for mindfulness to arise, and Upandita says it's the closest support for mindfulness, I'm just using his words, is ardent effort. So I'm adding balanced, ardent, balanced effort. This is the closest support. So bringing all of these to bear with our practice so that we're steadfast, we're close to, the, to whatever is being experienced, there's a clarity, a closeness. The two manifestations of mindfulness are the first one being confronting whatever the object of mindfulness is, uh, being face-to-face, mindfulness being face-to-face with the object. And the second one is protection. With regard to the first manifestation, these are the instructions we give every morning. You'll, you'll hear how it is to come face to face with the object through the instructions. Protection is the second one. Being face to face means, again, without an agenda to face it, without needing to get rid of it, without needing to figure out about being right, 
Uh, sometimes we have lots of thoughts that come in without needing to get uh, lost in the thoughts. Uh, to experience the moment beneath the words, that means to experience with bare attention just the sensations of the body from within the body, just the feelings from within the feelings, just whatever is experienced as mental objects in a bare attention way. So from the Bahia Sutta, um, the words of the Buddha, whenever you see a form, let there just be the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there just be the hearing. When you smell an odor, let there just be the smelling. When you taste a flavor, let there just be the tasting. When a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When you practice like this, there will be no self. There will be no running that way, no coming this way, no stopping anywhere. That is the end of suffering. That is the way to Nibbana. So this bare attention where the storyline doesn't have to get in the way, where you can just be with whatever's happening in a bare attention way. So in, the, in my own practice, there were places of my own heart, past situations that kept gnawing at me, that kept coming up. And the storylines were a very strong vortex of energy that kept drawing the attention away from simply being present and drawing me away from what real mindfulness is. It's sometimes relieving to go into the storyline because we don't have to experience with bare attention the pain that we have to face underneath the storyline. So sometimes the storyline is an escape for us. And uh, we're not, uh, we don't have to be with the pain so closely. But I remembered what Upandita says about, said about marshalling your energy and bringing all your strength, vesting everything in, into the present moment, that pa part of satipatthana, that really, that strength, that oomph that you have to bring forth so that we can get below the world of concept and into the direct moment of experience. Sometimes, of course, the stories fed my sense of being right, which, you know, just got me more and more identified into, solidified into a sense of self, not just being right, but into I am right, more and more away from the present moment. The intensities of the story line of it, attachment, aversion, became uh, more difficult to get out of. When I could just open to the feeling of aversion, the feeling of being right, the feeling of confusion, not fueling it with a story, but just being with the feeling. Um, there's a saying, uh, just feel it, don't fuel it. Don't fuel it with words, just feel it, come close to it. Rub the attention on whatever is being felt below the storyline. 
the storyline will wither us. The storyline withers me all the time. When I can just be with the raw feeling, there's a sense of confidence that comes. There's a sense of um, trusting that moment, very deep trust, because that is the truth, really feeling that moment in a truthful way. There's a sense of willingness to relax into the present moment because when we can be there, we can say, there doesn't need to be fear about this. It's that actually, sometimes that feeling of rawness is more truthful than the stories we tell about it. So we get to the place more of that ownerless activity. There are just events happening. This feeling of aversion fueling various thoughts that hopefully we stay out of the content of and we just notice the process of its arising, passing, and uh, dissolving. When we try to get into the story, we just get more knotted up. So this is a my way of um, accentuating. Mindfulness doesn't mean being in the story of things, figuring it out in any way. When we're thinking, when we're in the storyline, just noticing thinking, just noticing whatever that particular storyline is, and let, let it be seen in its arising, changing, and passing away mode. Carlos Castaneda says, Whenever the internal dialogue stops, the extraordinary facets of who we are surface as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. So this mirroring in a very true way can happen. Mirroring of what's going on beneath the surface of things. The second manifestation of mindfulness is protection, I mentioned. Protection because when mindfulness is there with changing objects, as we're teaching in this uh, next 10 days, uh, 9 days, the various objects that are arising and passing away, when mindfulness is powerful on changing objects, it also develops concentration. It's not the kind of concentration on one single object or a few objects, like in metta, but it's a concentration on various objects arising and passing away. And when that happens and we have the continuity, that's why continuity is so important, then concentration develops. When concentration develops, there is this very strong force field that keeps out the kilesas, or the defilements of the mind, or the various hindrances that manifest in greed, hatred, delusion. And so we feel in that time protected. They may come, but they're handleable. And sometimes they don't come at all for periods of time when mindfulness can be there with continuity because of the concentration that's developed. This protection protects us from those defilements, from those hindrances, and the mind becomes more powerful. 
so that when the hindrances arise, they're more diminished, they're weakened, and uh, mindfulness is able to see through them also. This is from a Nyanaponika Thera, a German monk who passed away in recent years, lived in Sri Lanka. He said, fearlessly mindfulness questions old habits, often grown meaningless. It uncovers its roots and helps abolish all that is seen to be harmful. So in this way, mindfulness manifests as protection. So on the everyday level, there's protection. On a very uh, profound level, there's also protection with mindfulness. And we're able to be at this ever-deepening place where wisdom begins to be seen, be acknowledged. The knowledge of wisdom arises. The knowledge of the impermanent nature on a very deep level of everything. The uh, conditional or empty nature of everything. The unsatisfactory nature of everything. Anicca, anatta, dukkha. You'll hear more about these terms during the retreat. Wisdom arises through these knowledges and ignorance begins to be uh, relinquished, uprooted, abolished. And there's this ever-deepening investigation of the present moment. This ability, as the Buddha said, we're able to do. Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle. So this ability to just be completely fluid with the mindfulness and to notice that fluidity at a very deep level, the the passing nature of everything, the empty nature of everything, the unsatisfactory nature. There's, there's nothing that can be grasped that will give us lasting happiness. Easy to say, of course, hard to do. But if we keep the thread of mindfulness going in our practice, we will strengthen that ability, will strengthen that skill, the extraordinary qualities of who we really are will expose themselves and be known and be useful to us as we continue on our quest, our spiritual urgency, our spiritual opening. So I'd like to end with... um, This is from Wendell Berry, and the title of it is your life, and it's from his book of poems, The Way It Is. You will walk toward the mirror closer and closer, then flow into the glass. You will disappear someday like that, being more real, more true at the last. So let's sit for a moment.
So too, also some good advice from Rumi. I can't let this one go by. It's called Love as a Stranger. Let go of your worries and be completely clear-hearted like the face of a mirror that contains no images. When it is empty of forms, all forms are contained in it. No face would be ashamed to be so clear. If you want a clean mirror, behold yourself and see the shameless truth which that mirror reflects. So thank you for your attention to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.